Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center at McGill University. For this recording, I am thrilled to be joined by Professor Ruth Morgan, an associate professor in the School of History at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia, where she's also the director of the Center for Environmental History. Her interests lie in environmental history and the history of science, with a particular focus on Australia, the British Empire, and the Indian Ocean world. Her book, Running Out, Water in Western Australia, which was published in 2015 with UWA Publishing, uh, was the winner of the Western Australian Premier's Book Award in 2016. In this recording, though, we are discussing one of Professor Morgan's journal articles entitled Health, Hearth and Empire, Climate, Race and Reproduction in British India and Western Australia, which was published in Environment and History in 2021. Professor Morgan, thank you very much for joining us for this podcast recording and for discussing your work. So the first uh, question, I just want to ask you basically to introduce your article. Um, You are an environmental historian and a historian of science. You've written several notable articles in addition to your award-winning book. Thus, I wondered, how did you come to the history you describe in Health, Hearth and Empire? Uh, What kind of questions were you trying to answer? Uh, What themes were you exploring? And is there a broader project you had in mind when you set out to research and write it? So this this project, or I suppose this this article, which it, it fits into a bigger project, um, as as you as suspect, it's um it was a long time in the making, and I suppose it um didn't begin necessarily as an exploration of of gender and race so much as I suppose about demography, and it as so many projects. I suppose, that come after one's PhD, it does have its roots in those doctoral studies. And um, I, I suppose when you start out on your PhD, you you never know what's going to come next and the sorts of, um, I suppose, threads that you you come across and, and want to explore um, further and, and, and they kind of um, hook you and you can't escape them until you get them out of your systems. So what interested me when I was um, working on the, the doctoral thesis that became the book, Running Out, uh, Water in Western Australia, um, was that I kept coming across all these references when I was reading about the colonial history of Western Australia, all these references not only about um, demographic anxieties in Western Australia of of the colonial concerns that the white population was tiny relative um, not only to the enormous size of, of the colony, which takes up a third of the Australian continent, so not, not insignificant, but also relative to the Indigenous population, which for the colonists they had a very um, uh, sketchy sense of that population size, but nevertheless they were concerned that they were outnumbered. But in all those uh, early colonial histories were these constant references to India and it just bamboozled me because I think typically in Australian history, we we often are more aware of the Pacific orientation of the continent then and now. And this real sense that we're a, a continent that looks to the Asia Pacific, to the United States, and a lot of scholarship um, is, is oriented in that direction for, for very, very good reason. Um, and that's partly because most of the Australian population does live on the eastern seaboard, so that makes sense. 
and um, obviously there are strong historical connections um, to to the Pacific, not least, um, you know, Pacific Ocean is where the first British colony um, is established in South Wales and so forth. But by being a um, someone that grew up in Western Australia, I suppose I, I had that kind of other other perspective and, and curiosity about this other history. But it never occurred to me that it was connected to to India, and I suppose that's a a product of um, a an education that was very much still about British British history and and not British imperial history so much. So this constant reference in in the colonial history to to India fascinated me. It wasn't something I could really explore to any great extent in in my um, doctoral work, but. I have returned to it, I guess, in the the projects that I've um, followed since, because I just wanted to get to the the nub of it. And in many ways, I've been interested and and inspired by uh, work that my colleague James Beattie has done in in New Zealand, and he has um, pursued, I suppose, the imperial environmental connections between um, not only New Zealand and India, but also looping in Australia, as well as um, more recently China and Chinese diaspora. But he he too's picked up on, on those connections. We we both, I think, have been interested in, in seeing how circulation of people and ideas, animals, plants have have really shaped these places. They're, they're, they haven't been um, separate as we've so often um, believed in, in terms of historiographically that the separation of settler colonies like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they often aren't written about in, in connection with um, parts of the empire like India. And when I sort of have spoken over, over a few years now, I suppose, because um, this project has been a challenging one, about um, exploring more closely those connections between British India and Australia, the the sense is, well, you know, you've got this great imbalance of British India being at the hub of of the British Empire um, and what were these sort of ragtag bunch of Australian colonies with, you know, nefarious individuals being dispatched out there. You know, they're not really, it's not really like for like. And while I appreciate that in terms of imperial um, British history, um, and it might be more of a one-way flow. It wasn't just something that one or two people were worried about in Australia. It's it's motivating quite big colonial enterprises and fascinating contemporaries, and they are really trying to leverage whatever influence they have on the metropole and in India to um, see some of their schemes, to see some of their ideas come to pass. And so this is this is, I guess, a product of that line of thinking that you have these Western Australians um, worried about their their circumstances. They feel incredibly isolated, which is a real streak, I think, in in Western Australian history and and contemporary politics as well. And they are doing anything they can to to seek out connection, whether that's through trade, whether it's through um, sort of cultural connection, and they are not only in communication with with um, with London, with Britain, but with India, with colonies in in Southeast Asia, whatever presence they can they can reach out to. So this this has been, um, as I say, um, a while in the works. And as I dug into it and 
sort of familiarise myself with, I guess, the demographic or population histories in in Australia and in Western Australia, I realised that these these concerns um, about the Anglo population were contemporaneous with studies and curiosity, I suppose, in the fate of the Indigenous population, that these were not um, happening in isolation. And it fascinated me that 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 could be the case, that on the one hand, Britons are trying to come to terms with the impact that they are having. Um, and this is also in the context of, you know, frontier conflict, invasion. So they're, they're grappling with their presence in, in, in the colonies, not just Australia, but elsewhere, while also wondering about themselves and, and their own fate and, and bringing those into conversation. So that kind of work um, by the likes of Tiffany Shellam, who's um, an amazing um, historian who's worked closely on frontier contact between Indigenous Western Australians and British settlers, has it was her work that alerted me to the likes of Florence Nightingale having some kind of interest in what was happening. And that that was really surprising because um, I I was not aware of um, Florence Nightingale's other life as a statistician, which um, you know is more my ignorance than anything. But as I dug into that connection, I learned of her interest in uh, the I suppose the health of British soldiers as well, and and her response. I knew about Crimea, but I didn't know that she also had this British Indian life, and so. When I found that these things are happening at exactly the same time and knowing how much Western Australia was um, concerned with what was happening in India, I was like, okay, let's dig a little bit deeper and, and see what happens here. So it was it was a long, um, I suppose, initially a long bow to draw potentially and something to, to sort of dig up, dig into, but it was just, just sparked my curiosity. And, and I think what has interested me um, in terms of understanding this Australia-India connection has been that, as I mentioned before, we, we consider them in isolation so often because I think the historiography has um, encouraged this kind of separation of settler colony from other forms of colonisation. But that means that we're not seeing how they're actually mutually constituting each other, that there is a, there is a connection there that it's sort of reinforcing the other that that tropicality needs a contrast. So what are they contrasting it to? What is the what what is it that they want? And what is it that is the ideal mode that um, the tropics are not affording white bodies? So that's something I just was really interested in exploring. And I know it's um a theme, of course, that's really occupied um, historians of South Asia, sort of health and climate and and white bodies, but what happens when we bring it to Australia? And that that is something that um, historians like Warwick Anderson, Alison Bashford have considered in tropical Australia, um, which is always a bit of a, a tricky place, it seems, for, for white bodies and has um, long been a sort of source of anxiety for, for the colonial project. But what about temperate Australia where most white people ended up living? So that's some of the sort of muddled threads I've I've been musing over for way too long now, and and to bring the gender aspect in, I think was something that I just wasn't tuned into, I suppose, and that's partly, I suppose, a, 
bit of a, a product of of the historiography as well. Um, and I know we might we might talk about that a little bit more, but seeing how reproduction and race and gender are tangled up in our environmental histories, but so often we we don't see them. We perhaps are more attracted to other themes or there, I think that's just still a, an avenue we haven't quite explored as much as we might. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Well, in that case, as you left us there, let, let's pick up this thread of uh, gender then. So one of the things that, that's really important to the history of um, Western Australia in the 19th century is this idea of British colonists trying to portray it as a sanatorium for the British in India, but especially for British women. How key was this as a strategy to try and ensure the long-term viability of the colony? Um, or there were there other strategies? Um, and can you, can you give the sense of the importance of the sanatorium and therefore also the gender dynamic um, to the early history of European colonization in Western, Western Australia? Yeah, thanks, Philip. It's um, quite remarkable uh, the way in which they worried about this um, problem of gender imbalance which um, emerged in the colony. And that was mostly a result of a lack of uh, migration from from the UK to, to Western Australia, mainly because as is so often the case um, in in histories of the British Empire, the architects of the colony, I suppose, let's just say oversold the project. They misrepresented, I think, um, would be an understatement what colonists might encounter when they arrived. So um, for those of you who have not had the pleasure of exploring Western Australian colonial history, this uh, little outpost on the west coast of Australia was being explored by the British and the French in the 1820s. This was um, claimed for, for Britain um, and in around 1827, 1828, and the Swan River Colony, which becomes Western Australia, is established, uh, founded in 1829. And it's sold as um, an amazing opportunity uh, for, for free settlers. Of course, on the east coast of the continent, um, Britain has been transporting its unwanted um, convicts for almost four decades by now, um, with New South Wales founded in 1788 and then Van Diemen's Land afterwards. So there's a really big sense of um, these are very different establishments, but they're also being um, the Swan River Colony, Western Australia is being founded in a very different model, that these are going to be free people. But when people start to arrive, it's very evident that they are not having a good time. This is a very sandy, hostile environment to the people that are that are coming out to Western Australia. Um, this is not what they expected. It is not as well watered as they anticipated. It's hot. It's sandy. The flies are very upsetting. Um, these are people who expected a lot more comfort. I'm not quite sure why they thought it would be quite as comfortable as they did, but they set off in the hope of, of a better life. And they were also quite well-to-do, so they weren't used to labouring. They didn't have a big labouring background. So I suspect all these things conspired against um, uh, their experience. And so quite quickly word got back to England that, mm, not sure this is a great place. People wanted to turn around when they got to the Cape Colony. Um, it, word got there. They wanted to sort of abort the mission. But those that did set out 
they made it and and some did uh, soldier on and um, establish themselves on, on Indigenous land. Of course, though, the circumstances, you know, weren't amazing. They They just struggled on and it meant that the population wasn't growing. This was not thriving. And so while in New South Wales, in uh, Tasmania, um, in Victoria, by the middle of the 19th century, transportation of convicts has become out of um, out of favour. There is a movement against the transportation of convicts. At that very moment, Western Australia goes, here's our opportunity to get some people. Of course, the people they get are not um, very desirable. They are male convicts. They are Fenians. Um, they are the riffraff. So for the well-to-do of Western Australia, this is a bit of a, a challenge because it's conflicting with their sense of uh, being gentry, um, of being a free colony. But it's 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 market it's sold to them. The idea is sold to them that this is not only going to overcome our population problem, we're going to have a, a greater sort of physical or demographic presence here, but we're also going to get some cheap labor because um we we need people to actually do a lot of the work to to colonize this place. But as a result of all this, you end up with a lot of male convicts. And that produces its own social problems and social dynamics that the the leading lights of, of the colony are a bit worried about because this is not fostering the kind of uh, nuclear family vision that um, they have. This is not a, a sort of moral middle class. They're very worried not only about what all these single convict men are doing, um, they're worried about their interactions with the Indigenous population, which have results uh, not only for spreading disease, for uh, violence, but they're also producing mixed-race children, which was not on the plan. There is a movement to get female convicts and female servants, but not in the same numbers. And so, again, this is this is not ideal. So th- this is where the attraction to India has always been, that the, the whites that are going to India are, are better. They are going to be military. They're going to be of a higher class. And if we could just attract some of them, even just, you know, for, for furlough, for a few months a year, that's going to improve the colony. That's going to sort of sprinkle some dust of civilization to our remote outpost. And that's where the sanatoria comes in. It's it's to um, attract these hopefully British families to spend time in Western Australia. And so they they really emphasise the proximity of, of the Swan River colony to India, that rather than having to go back to, to Britain, um, you can just go across the Indian Ocean to Western Australia. That's that's a short trip. You're, you're going to be able to bounce back. You're going to have a great time. Um, so there was a lot of, again, inflation shall we say of of western australia's genteel qualities and that's where they had to draw on natural characteristics like climate like that temperate temperate environment um the sea breeze all these things that in this moment are um are understood to be very um uh, salubrious conditions are really part of that story and this is where the british women come in they're concerned about um, the demographic imbalance that there are many more single men in in the colony, whether they're convicts or not, 
and women are supposedly women of a certain class I should say are supposedly going to bring their their moral influence to the colony they're going to be an uplifting civilizing force for the white population as well as to some extent the indigenous population and that is the great attraction and they're hoping that where if it's only British men coming, they might return to the return home or go back to India. But if the women come, that's going to make them stay. That's part of that kind of settler colonial project, that they will stay and they will, they will most importantly reproduce. They will grow in number by having more wombs on the ground and those children will then beget more children. So that's the kind of vision that they're hoping to, to pursue here. Okay, so one of the kind of contradictions here, or the thing that they're fighting against, of course, uh, in both its appeals to India uh, and in both the context of Western Australia as well, is death. And, and that, that is the key back, one of the key backgrounds that you explore in your article in terms of um, what to do about death, both in British India uh, and in Western Australia. In British India, it is the concerns with death of the British colonists. Uh, and in Western Australia, it actually, and we haven't touched on this yet, but perhaps you can explore a bit more now, is the death of the Indigenous population. And this is a very broad summation of perhaps, again, you can add some more details to this. The British Imperial government blamed death on climate in India, and in Western Australia, they blamed death on phenomena related to the civilising mission. Um, these are obviously not the real causes. So again, kind of working around the question maybe a little bit. Could you actually speak to the actual causes of death in these contexts as well? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's fair to say that in in the Western Australian context, the the problem for Indigenous people was uh, violence, settler violence, as well as their immunity. Um, this is uh, a people who have not been exposed in any great degree um, to the diseases of Europeans, and across the continent, just as in other settler colonies, uh, diseases that are brought into those those communities ravage them. And then when you're adding venereal disease into the mix as well, um, we have outbreaks of smallpox, there's tuberculosis, dreadful epidemics, and observers among the colonists note that this that they are the vectors of these diseases and they recognize the toll that it's having what they that they don't see that as a necessarily a a reason perhaps to do things differently they see that as just an unfortunate byproduct of of colonization that this is this is just an inevitable um part of the story but the toll is significant and along with all the other factors that go with with colonization. But it, it fascinated me. And I, I from what I understand in, in North America, that kind of contradiction is evident there as well in, in the late Linda Nash's work, for instance, of how the, the climate could be healthy and healthful for, for whites, but for Indigenous peoples, that could be why then were they suffering. Um, and so that the, the climate reasoning seems to be something that's incredibly malleable that could be used in all sorts of interesting and, and um, creative ways to suit the purposes of the of the commentator really. Um, and, and the physicians as well for, for their part. They um they were just as engaged in these kinds of conversations and and the understandings of climate at this time afforded that kind of 
that flexibility, I suppose. So in, in the Western Australian context, you have um, violence and disease ravaging um, local peoples. And for the Noongar community of the Swan River Colony, so the people that live in southwestern Australia, they couldn't just move away. That this is this is their their country, places that they have um, lived for for upwards of 60,000, 75,000 years. And this is not just a matter of moving away and to avoiding disease. So they're they're on country, they're defending their country, and that's entered their their world. So this is um, a potentially unprecedented challenge that they're they're having to face. And then in in India, the problems are to some extent much the same. Immunity and and disease and venereal disease is a huge part of the problem. And that's where Florence Nightingale becomes involved because she's um, similarly concerned with the um, fraternising of um, whites and Indians and also the role of prostitution in in this story and so venereal disease becomes something that is tackled with great gusto mainly i think i mean there's obviously the moralizing side of that but it's because it's weakening the british forces on the ground it's um and they're bringing it back to to the uk as well so there's this kind of contagion element that is both physical and moral so yes the 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 climate in all of that mix is actually not that not that strong um but in the same way that um john mcneil's work has shown you know that the toll of yellow fever on um on uh invading forces in the americas it's the british haven't got immunity to some of the diseases that are um that they're finding when they go on their colonizing mission around the world so that that is a, a real issue but it's not because it's a tropical climate it's it's the diseases they're encountering but they have no sense at this point that germ theory um would possibly be on the cards that that's something that they would be aware of this is a a time of miasma this is a time of going to higher ground as um, finding these sanatoria, these enclaves where not only the, uh, the conditions are more amenable to, to their physiology, but also that they can have a sort of racially distinct zones where they are safe and, and can conduct themselves in particular fashion. So around this time, was there any significant challenge to the climate determinism as, as the key cause for disease like this whole experience this whole case study which you see that the medical people are interested in for example not Florence Nightingale and clearly the evidence points away from climate determinism as a or climate as a key cause of disease I suppose then the question is was climate determinism challenged in official British medical thinking around the mid-19th century at all and if so how much and I suppose, were there other official explanations for deaths at this time or and or did others develop in, I suppose, in, in the aftermath of this? The germ theory is a lot, obviously a lot later, as you alluded to, but is there kind of a gradual transition to this that we kind of get from like British medical investigations in places like Western Australia and, and India? Mm. I'm, this is something that's really puzzled me because... As I've tried to deal with the contradictions of what these um, commentators are, are, are observing and describing and trying to tackle, and I'm sort of seeking to understand their logic 
my sense is that they're also trying to grapple with this as well because it's defying their their understandings and um, Warwick Anderson points out that although there are those who are sort of very committed to the, the climatic reasoning, there are those other physicians who, while they are, you know, part of that, I suppose, um, community of thinkers, they that there is no, uh, not yet a, an alternative reasoning, they are noting that, well, hang on a minute, this isn't holding up. What What is going on? Like, the, the British people are not thriving as much as uh, they should in these temperate climates. And um, and they're seeing that there's got to be some other answer for this, but they, they can't yet articulate what that might be. And so I suppose they're more just putting out a word of caution. And that's, I think, where the moral, the moral or behavioural element is coming into the story, that climate alone might not be the only guarantee of your of your physical health. You should perhaps also consider the foods you're eating and what you're drinking and who you're fraternizing with. So there are other kinds of treatments, I suppose, for, for the kinds of conditions or situations that are developing. And that is also then around, you can see how that might play into logics around the spread of venereal disease. Well, if you're being very, um, if you're practicing temperance and you're um, not having too much alcohol and you're not eating too much meat and you're not doing certain things, well, then you're not necessarily going to get up to mischief that might then lead to these other problems. So I think that moral uh, treatment becomes quite important to make up for the for the problems they're encountering with their climate reasoning, um, that that becomes another kind of um, antidote to the conundrums of, of colonisation. And that's that's evident in both British India and, and the Australian colonies, for sure. Oh, very interesting. All right, I think I'm going to ask just a couple, a couple more questions, um, which are kind of uh, a, a, a bit broader. Um, the first one is uh, actually one of the things that I think is really striking, really interesting about your article that um, is the way it opens. Um, <laughs> it's because it, the keywords, the keywords, the first keyword is climate history. Mm. Fantastic. This is something that I, I'm, I'm very interested in myself. And then the first paragraphs go, I could talk to you about the 1815-1857 uprising in India, sometimes referred to as the Indian mutiny or the Indian rebellion. And I think this is an absolutely fascinating approach to an event that is usually seen in political and military terms. And that's, I suppose, what made you think of the 1857 uprising in terms of climate history? And I suppose, how does a climate historical perspective help us to understand the aftermath of the 1857 uprising? It really, yeah, it really gets you straight in there and really draws, draws, <laughs> draws your reader in. I was really, really fascinated by the way you managed to do that. Oh, uh, thank you. I think, um, yeah, look, I think it's um, one of those challenges with climate history of of how you arrive at it, I guess. And some um, researchers might come at climate history from a very, from 21st century science and from a very quantitative perspective or even a, a 19th century approach to meteorology and, and the way that 19th century people might have understood particular atmospheric um, conditions and so forth. But I suppose I've arrived at climate history from a more social or cultural history approach, which is much more qualitative, which does allow for this um, kind of 
uh, understanding of, of health and medicine and how these were also climatic in ways that we as moderns don't necessarily relate to in quite the same way. And I think often when I'm encountering this work, it's I have to check myself sometimes to be, empathy might be a strong word, but to, to sort of put myself to try and relate to these people and, and their understandings, because it is so strange, I guess, from our current perspective that they were so convinced of health and climate being so entangled. And I guess for this for this particular piece, I I I felt, I guess, the the challenge of connecting what is a story about an obscure part of the British Empire. I think, you know, not obscure to me, but to anyone else out there, um, probably like yourselves, or if um, I was someone sitting in Calcutta or um, in Mumbai or in Johannesburg and going, why do I care? What what is what what does this story have to do with the bigger history of empire? And there are a few moments in the British Empire more significant than than this uprising in terms of what it meant for the empire as a whole. It wasn't just about British India. It wasn't just about what some strange little part of Australia made of it. This really shook the foundations of the empire. So I thought, well, my story does have a link to this and it's not an accidental link. This is um, something that was seized upon by the Western Australians, but it was also galvanising for for, um, the architects of British India and for the, the campaigners that saw in this moment a way to reform um, and opportunity for themselves. And I think this is also a bit of a, I suppose, a long, a, a, a wider interest for me that certain individuals keep popping up. I know we've become really familiar with Valentine's webs and networks and what they can tell us about the British Empire, but I'm so fascinated by these individuals that just keep popping up over and over again in the strangest of places or or maybe not strange to them but strange to us as when we see where they uh, where their interests um, and ambitions take them seeing these incredibly ambitious people who see an empire opportunity for their own self-advancement and if they can align their own self-interest with um, the advancement of empire well they're onto a good thing so I I saw in the Indian uprising this moment that was about not only incredible violence and incredible, um, you know, shockwaves throughout the empire, but because of the responses to this um, uprising that Britain decided that the way that they were going to secure the whole their hold on this place was to change their governance of the subcontinent. It was no longer East India Company, we're going to be the Raj, and we're going to station a whole lot more of uh, our white men there, that required a whole different outlook. This was not a, you know, going to be a light touch model. This was going to be all hands on deck. And that then had repercussions for, for other parts of the empire as well, or at least people wanted it to. This is also partly um, my own curiosity and to, to have someone as well-known as Florence Nightingale, connecting these places was just just such a novelty and just so fascinating to me that I just indulged myself as well. (laughs) 
Um, I'm glad you did. It was a really fascinating take on it. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading it. Um, so one final question, well, one penultimate question then. And it's going to return to the well, return to a theme that we actually mentioned right at the beginning. And that's the theme of, of gender in environmental history. And in the article itself, you cite um, research published in 2010 to note that gender is still relatively looked within this scholarly field. Um, and I think that still persists today. Um, and I suppose what I kind of ask you to do, if you can, is to see, to suggest how you see the field developing in the future, um, particularly in research focusing on empire and the notion world. Just how, how, how is gender going? How does gender fit in now, I suppose, compared to 2010? But also, how is it, how is it, how is it moving forwards and where, where will it go next? Sure. Well, this is this is the thing, and as I'm a latecomer to to considering gender in these issues, and I think it's it's not only important, I think, for us to think about including women in our environmental histories, but by taking a gendered approach, you're also thinking about ideas of masculinity as much as ideas of femininity, as well as interactions between gender and race and gender and uh, climate or other kinds of, I suppose, identity, if, if you like, um, and that these were ideas that were so strong in this period. It, it's sort of an, an entirely moulded interactions and, and the colonial presence and, and their interactions and understandings of their environments. So I, I feel like it's it's such a rich area to explore, but I think we have we struggle, I think, to work with the environmental into these stories of gender. And maybe that's, I know other researchers who I've cited, like um, Nancy Unger, Virginia Scharf, um, in the North American context, where I think gender and environmental history has been strongest. We have in Australia um, a great many people who do gender history but don't necessarily take environment into the mix. I think part of the issue is the kinds of themes that we've favoured in environmental history have tended to be, I suppose, typically masculine areas or men's labour, forestry, uh, water management, you know, really kind of muscular male roles. We've been less interested in the domestic area as a space for environmental history and the garden. And I think there is a little bit of a sense potentially that, well, what do they tell us about bigger themes? But I think perhaps that's that's changing. And I think we're seeing the influence from the work that's happening in, in other areas, particularly, I suppose, around race and, and slavery and, and the role of the body in our, our histories. And I am grappling with that scholarship as well and its implications for my work and the sophistication of that work. And so I'd like to see some more of that work. And I think Linda Nash was someone that was very much working in that direction in, in her work. And that's um, definitely um, something to aspire to. The kinds of recognition of the intersections of, of health and, and gender and, and, the, and the body, I think it's just something that um, we, we are yet to fully appreciate. And so reproduction naturally becomes part of that story. I think that's certainly an avenue that we will see more of um, down the track as, as people see that it's not only about interactions with the, the environment in sort of landscape changing ways, but it's also about 
how the environment affects us physically. That's our permeable uh, selves, which I think perhaps the the pandemic might have sort of reminded people potentially. I'm not sure. Um, but I think it's encouraging. As, as much as there's been, I think, um, a slow start on this front, despite the amazing work of many um, scholars, um, there's just so much more that can be done. I think that's really exciting. And, and I think that gives us opportunity to bring the environment into scholarship that traditionally hasn't considered that or hasn't foregrounded um, environment in their work. And um, I think that's that's exciting too. I think it's it's so easy for us to uh, work in our little clusters with our um, very familiar work, but the cross-pollination and the results of that, it's always so innovative and, and enriching. So I, I really hope that we see more of that in the future. I agree. Um, it's potentially very exciting work there. And you've given me certainly some references that I need to follow up myself uh, and will do so. Okay, so I want to ask one final question. I asked this to all of our guests. Um, and thank you very much for discussing your research um, up to now. What are you working on actually at this moment? Um, what can we expect to see, read and hear about from you uh, in the, I suppose, relatively near future? relatively near future. Well, I still remain fascinated by um, the Australian colonies and the British India story, and I am slowly but surely chipping away on that bigger project, exploring other connections. So a series of case studies um, such as the the more famous uh, trade in horses, the trade in eucalypts, those sorts of exchanges and, and how they make how they make for a whole, I guess, in, in terms of understanding the relationships between the Australian colonies and India. But that's on the back burner because I'm exploring another uh, part of my um, work, which is, I again, come out of the, the doctoral research, but I also work on the history of climate change and climate change science and the politics of all of that. And that's um, a more pressing project for me at the moment. And I'm trying to urgently finish a book manuscript, which is looking at the history of climate change governance in a, I suppose, international history perspective. So as much as that story starts as um, a, a story around the rise of climate science as a sort of post-1945 phenomenon, it then becomes an environmentalist project and then, of course, the more um, challenging issue that we we are now grappling with, where it's it's not so much an environmental issue. It's about the transformation of economies and energy, and and what's at stake when when countries are trying to negotiate and and deal and govern this problem, which you know no one wants to see any short term pain for long term gain. And I think that's a the the real kind of um, crossroads we find ourselves at. So that's the project I'm working on at the moment, and um, hopefully that will uh, be off my off my chest soon. It's it's interesting. It's uh, the the closer you get to the present, it's trying to get that that distance from the negotiations that are going on and and the uh, circumstances, um, the historical context as as you get closer to the present is is very difficult to establish. But of course, it's it's vital to understand how we how we've got to where we are and and where we could have gone differently. It sounds like incredibly urgent work, and I very much look forward to reading about it and 
Uh, I sympathize with the challenge of going up to the present, though I cannot empathize on the basis that I have stuck myself to about 1900 as a nice point to finish. Maybe that's a frontier to follow down the road. Uh, I find that idea very daunting. So thank you very much for your scholarship and thank you for doing this. I really look forward to seeing that coming. So and again, thank you for discussing uh, your article. Uh, I also want to thank um, Sam Glee Riemann for organising and producing the podcast and, of course, you, the listener, for streaming uh, and or downloading. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding and this has been the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 